For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I serve here at the team at Hope Midtown as our formation director. And I get the chance to work with our midweek groups, the courses that we run. And the past four weeks, we've been in this series called The Church We Hope For. And it's been this time where we've been exploring the text in scriptures that highlight some of the core values we have here as a church at Hope Midtown. Thus far, Drew has shared with us most of our core values of authenticity, community, diversity, and generosity. And today, we'll be exploring a fifth value, uh, uh, another value of ours. And before I dive into that, I want you guys to get to know me a little bit and know a little bit more about me. And uh, there's something important that I want you guys to understand about me, which is that I have a bit of a recurring dream. I've had this dream for truly as long as I can remember, since I was like five years old, and I have it about every other month. So five years old to my late 20s now, I've been having this dream over and over and over again. And uh, it always starts the same way. I'm in some restaurant, I'm in a place of eating, and I have this empty tray of food, and I start to fill it up with everything that I love. Now, when I was a kid, this dream was always that I was in an elementary school. I was in my elementary school cafeteria, and I'd be filling up my lunch tray with everything that I love. Pizza, burgers, slushies, like sour candy, choros, everything that I would want to eat, I'd be filling it up, and it'd be filling the cafeteria, it'd be this insane, like, piled high, mound of food. And as I got older, it, it morphed a little bit. Sometimes it would be Jackson Diner, which is a restaurant in Queens. It's an Indian lunch buffet. And I'd be filling this, this, this plate with mud and curry, with garlic naan, everything that I want to eat. It would just be the most sensory experience. It would be such a pleasurable moment. And sometimes it's also like a wedding cocktail. I love, invite me to your wedding so I want to eat your food. Uh, but I love like a cocktail hour. is one of my favorite moments of my life, just running around, grabbing all these different foods. Shrimp scampi, everything that you could love. And my, my, this, this, this tray is getting bigger and bigger, and it's, it's getting more and more exciting. The, the, the odor of the food, the scent is wafting into my nose. And I, I sit at the table, and I'm getting ready to eat in the stream. It always ends the same exact way. I make the perfect bite of food. It's so, it just, it's overwhelming. My, my nose, it's overwhelming my, my, my senses. I bring it to my mouth, it's an inch away, and I wake up. <laughs> Without fail, this is how the dream ends every time. From five years old to 26 years old, it's the same dream over and over again, no matter the context. Right before I get to taste the food, I wake up. And I hated this dream. When I was a kid, I hated this dream. I woke up just so upset, so upset that I couldn't try the thing. I couldn't, I couldn't take joy in actually eating the food that was set before me. It was, it was like joy was being snatched away. But as I've gotten older, I've actually really learned to appreciate this dream. I wake up now after this dream and I'm like bounding, I'm, I'm leaping around, so happy that I was able to experience this. I think because over the years, I think I've learned that the light is actually found in messy circumstances. It's found in the unrealized, the unachieved, the things that we're longing for that are not yet here. The delight that, that, that the Lord longs to give us is most experienced in the context of the messiness of our difficulties, of our brokenness, and our anxieties. 
I think that's the kind of delight that God loves to give us. See, uh, let's dive into this passage with us today. Let's, let's look at what this passage says about delight and how it wants to teach us. See, it's funny that we're talking about this value of ours, delight, and we start with this passage because Psalm 36 does not start in a delightful way. It starts with a pretty long tirade about wickedness and wicked people. It shocks us. It shocks our senses. Because wickedness is an offensive thing to say. It's offensive. It, it kind of burns against our cultural values. And I think for partly good reason. See, these terms wickedness and sin, they've often been used to separate groups into in-group and out-group to those who belong and those who don't belong, those who are loved and not loved, right? And because of that, I think the terms are hard for us to use well. It's still a key tension, though, we see in the Bible. It's often highlighted over and over again. Wickedness and righteousness, sin and love. And I think it's something that's worth being wrestled with. Because I think... Many times we are tempted to think that wickedness is largely something that you can observe in other people. It's largely something that you can pay attention to and see and quickly label. It's exactly what happened. We saw, we saw happen in last week in, in the story of Zacchaeus, right? Everyone saw Zacchaeus on a tree having that conversation with Jesus, and they were perplexed, being like, why is Jesus talking to that sinner? That man has made his money in unscrupulous ways, unethical ways, unjust ways. There is, there, he's a sinful, wicked man. Jesus should not be talking to him. But this passage tackles wickedness in a slightly different angle. Yes, it definitely includes our behaviors, our actions. But let's take a second look at what this specifically says. See, in verse 1, it starts by saying this. Transgression speaks like an oracle to the wicked deep within their hearts. See, what, it's, what, what the, the psalmist is saying to us in this moment, what David is saying is that wickedness actually isn't largely something you first and foremost see, but it's something that is happening deep within us. It's ingrained. I know this to be true myself. I notice that wickedness is something that comes from within. It comes from the ways we were taught to do conflict, the cultural values that we might have absorbed over time, right? It's, it's something that's ingrained first and foremost. It's not something that you largely see, but it's something that comes from within. For me, I grew up thinking that anger was something that you shouldn't communicate until you have to. And it's explosive, and it's wrathful, and it's, it's really just destructive. And it's something that just was ingrained in the, in the culture I grew up in, in the family I grew up in. It was, it, it, it was anger couldn't be communicated in a healthy way. And it's something that just, it's from our family of origins. There might be something like that for you. Habits, patterns, communication styles, ways of dealing with conflict that are just kind of deep within us. And it's like, it's unearthed every now and then. It's, it's this image of wickedness that is not largely about how we label and group people, but about what's going on inside of us. It then goes on to say that they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. See, wickedness is largely also about denial and avoidance. It's when we don't even, we're just too overwhelmed by our circumstances, too overwhelmed by our pain, our suffering, our, our offense, that we can't even detect what we're doing wrong. I see myself in this passage the moments where I'm so angry or so sad or so grieved that I can't even notice the ways that I am acting destructively around me. 
it's, it's this denial and avoidance of the ways that we were formed, what's happening underneath the circumstance. And I think it's finally wickedness is defined as committing ourselves to a course. See, wickedness, I don't think is this kind of dastardly confidence and scheming, but it's this kind of like, it can't get better than this. We just commit ourselves to a way of doing and a way of being that is destructive to ourselves and to those around us. I think that is the type of wickedness we see here. What I love about this definition of wickedness, this, this description of wickedness in this passage, is that it's not unique to any specific group of people, any specific label of people that we might have, but it's the common experience of every single one of us. We're all tempted to this kind of wickedness, this kind of brokenness. It sets up the context of the brokenness that we see in the world around us, in the systems and the powers that be. In our world, in our city, we see economic and lending systems that continue to perpetuate inequality and poverty and financial insecurity in many families. In, in this pandemic that we've all experienced together, there was this wave of racism and xenophobia that was unveiled and it had us afraid for the most vulnerable members of our families and our communities. We are highly aware of the wickedness in the world around us, both within and around. And I'm sure personally in our lives, we felt this, the pangs of sin and brokenness, whether it be an abuse, betrayal, or broken relationships. What surprises me about this passage is that it, it takes this opener, this opener about darkness and evil and hardship and struggle, and it takes a quick, sharp left turn. And it goes on like this in Psalm 36, 5 and 6. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountain, your justice like the great deep. See, my assumption would be that after that tirade about wickedness, we'd finally hear about the good people. We'd finally hear about people who are doing things right, but instead the psalmist turns our gaze toward God, toward this God that responds to the brokenness in the world, the brokenness within us. And he doesn't come with the gavel. He doesn't come to punish. But what he comes to do is to extend his love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his justice. We are painted this mural of the beautiful attributes of God his loving kindness to people, his willingness to do good, to extend mercy, his faithfulness, his ability to follow through on what he has promised, his righteousness, his good plan for the world, his good plan for the good of all people, and his justice, his ability to make the right decisions. This is the God that, that, is in, that, that, that shows his face to us in response to the evil around us. And here's why I think we can delight. Because let's see how this God now interacts with a world plagued by evil, by people who are plagued by evil. It says in the, in the following verses, You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delight. See, the response of God in the face of deep brokenness in us, the response of God is to extend his love to us, is to extend his goodness to us, is to give us a place to sleep, things to eat, drink. It's this, it's this beautiful 
image of a God that does not respond to wickedness with anger, with disdain, with a heavy hand, with love and generosity. Can I switch to the, yeah, let's switch to the other one. Oh, we get, cool, yeah. But what I think is so beautiful about this is that this image of God giving us beauty in response to our brokenness, giving us generosity in response to our greed. It's this God who is so willing to respond to sin and brokenness and wickedness with love. And we get that in the image in verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. See, for me, that's the, that's the dream I have again, this moment that God is just willing to extend all of his pleasure, all of his joy to us. And it's finalized in that verse, in verse 8, where it says that you give them drink from your river of delights. And here is where I think delight kind of comes to play. See, when you take the Hebrew, the original text of this psalm, what it says is that your river of delights, the Hebrew for that, is Nahal Eden. Eden. And if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with the Christian story, Eden was, it's the Garden of Eden. It's the same exact word. Eden is this place where we have unfettered access to God, where we can be fully human with one another, fully human with God, and his love is, we have complete access to it. It's unfettered access and connectedness with God. And that, isn't that crazy that Eden, delight, is connection with God? And here's where we learn what connection truly is. It's relationship, it's delightful relationship with God and with one another. There's a, there's a tension that we face there, right? That we are invited to this access to God, but we are still plagued by wickedness. We, we are invited to this perfect garden in a deeply imperfect world. And how, how are we to do that? It's a, it's a tension. It's wickedness and righteousness joy and suffering, evil and good. It's a paradox. It seems impossible for us to understand, but I think this is where scripture wants us to learn that the light comes in deep complexity of that paradox, that we are to experience the light in the midst of brokenness within and around. See, this is, a, this is something that comes about several times in the Bible. Let's, let's put up this, uh, that reminder of all the different times we see that. Right? We're told in the Bible, in James, count it all a joy when you experience trials of all kinds. In Romans, it says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so we glory in suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And the same psalmist who wrote Psalm 36, David, wrote in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before, you prepare a table before me in the presence of enemies. It's this thing that we are to feast in the hardest of our circumstance. I know that feels impossible. I know that feels like, how can we access deep joy and delight in God and one another in the hardest of circumstance? But I think it's something that isn't, there's no method for it. There's no three-step program, but it's something that must be tasted and seen. See, the Bible has this phrase that it uses over and over again of taste and see. There's some things in our lives that can't be intellectually processed first, but they need to be lived in the body. 
in the moments of our suffering, for you, it might be physical ailments, it might be broken relationships, it might be separation from loved ones. But I think it's in that moment, as impossible as it sounds, as much of a paradox as it sounds, I think God wants to extend his delight. His love reaches the heavens, and I think it wants to reach you too. It wants to reach every one of us. See, this paradox captures a part of scripture that I love, which is that it's not all about intellectual compartmentalizing and systemizing. One of my favorite books about the Bible is this, is this book called The Fire of the Word by Chris Webb. And in it, he says this. He says, the Bible is a koan, and a koan is this kind of Buddhist saying, it's an East Asian saying, that is kind of really hard to just understand. It, it's a paradox. An example of one would be like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's something that can't be, you just can't answer right off the cuff. And what he says about the Bible is that it's like that. I still experience the Bible as the great koan of my life. Like a koan, the Bible comes to every one of us as something wholly strange and unusual, a world sketched out in awkward and irrecognizable angles. It alternately comforts and jars, inspires and grates. Scripture is untidy, unwieldy, and difficult. We stretch our minds to make sense of it, categorizing, systematizing, shaping everything into neat theological compartments. Yet the Bible resists us at every turn. I think that's the experience of delight, is that we, we're trying to figure out how do we experience delight in all of this suffering, all of our brokenness, both personal and systemic. But this is a lesson that we need to taste and see. It can't be taught, but it needs to be experienced and lived over the lifetime of seeking the delight of God. There's a, there's a moment in my life two years ago that I think gave me an image of this Cohen playing out in real time. Uh, we can put it on the screen. This is uh, the day I got married. It's, uh, th that's my wife, Emily, and we got married on March 19th, 2020. And uh, if you were here for that time, it was, it was, there was stuff happening, and it was a, it was a rough time. And uh, if you're aware with Indian cultures or Chinese cultures, weddings are really important. Weddings are the, like, culmination of all the dreams of a family kind of finally happening, getting to combine with another family. It's this huge party. Weddings are like the most important thing. I think in, in a lot of Asian families, the biggest grudges are you didn't attend my wedding. Like, that's, that's like a real thing. And because weddings are so important. And we had planned this wedding for, for over a year, finally getting to, to experience this deep celebration with all of our families across the country. It was a small Indian wedding, 500 people. And we were, we were gonna bring everyone. And it was this moment where people we hadn't seen in years were gonna come. But as we learned about the realities of this pandemic, as we learned about the realities of COVID-19, it was dangerous. It wasn't wise and we needed to cancel our wedding. And I think what was even harder about that was that on the day we got married, we had to say bye to our parents because we didn't know when the next time we would see them was. We didn't know when it would be safe to be with them again because we were gonna drive into the city and get married. We didn't know if we'd pick up a disease. We didn't know what we would bring back home. So our wedding day turned from this moment of deep joy 
the deep grief and sadness. And we felt the loss, not just of the celebration, but of life with our family. We would start our wedding isolated, quarantined away. And yet I love this picture. It, I, I look at this picture when I need to be reminded of the light because in this moment of grief and loss, confusion, anxiety, we don't know. This, this, this was this unknown virus. That's uh, Pastor Drew Jackson. He's pastor of East Village. That's Matt Kay. He was on staff with us at East Village as well. Um, and we're all just laughing and smiling in these circumstances that seem impossible. It was this moment where the delight of God was just falling on a people in desperate need of it. We, we, we were experiencing loss, grief, sadness, confusion, anxiety, and yet in this one solitary moment, we could smile and laugh as two were becoming one. It was, it was this moment of delight in despair. And that's why I say, I don't know if, if, if there's a way to teach it. I don't know if there's a step-by-step -step process to, 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 to get it. I think it's something that must be sought and experienced in the context of our suffering and pain. So my, my question for us today is, what is your context? What is the context of the wickedness you face, whether it's within you or around you? Because the good news of this text, the good news of scripture, is that God longs to extend his delight to you, even in the midst of that pain. It's, it's hard, because all we get is a taste sometimes. All we get is maybe even just a smell, like my dream. But I think, I think the hope of this scripture, the promise of God, is that one day, it won't just be a taste, but it'll be a feast. That all the things that are wrong, that all the brokenness we see within, that God longs to heal it fully. And that we are not who we see ourselves as now, but we are who God is creating us to be one day when he comes to make all things right. Through the power of the cross, let's put those final verses on the screen. I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we, as we prepare for our time of reflection, of rejoicing and delight. See, it says that there will be a day when evildoers, when evil, when wickedness, when brokenness lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. And for me, I know the wickedness that I've done. I know the things that I've done wrong, and I can experience this as scary. And yet, the story of the gospel is that Jesus was the one who laid down fallen. Jesus, through the cross, took what, was, what we thought was coming our way, and instead, he was the one who was defeated and thrown down. Because of that sacrifice, we are now able to fully experience that unfettered access to God, to Eden. We are now able to experience the light in the midst of suffering. But unlike this passage, Jesus was not unable to rise. Jesus did rise from the dead. And in his resurrection, he has now promised that there will be a day when he will make all things new. When he will make all things right, there will be no more tears, no more hunger, no more brokenness. The light will be experienced in all of its fullness.